Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Well, you see, that's not that easy a question. I say Kaufman. Most people say Kaufman. My wife says Kaufman. My kids say Kaufman. My kids introduce us. This is my dad, Josh Kaufman, and my mom, Nan Kaufman. If you're from New York, it's Kaufman. If you're from the rest of the country, it's Kaufman. Since more people speak with a New York accent than any other specific accent, by plurality, Kaufman is the correct pronunciation and the rest of the country is wrong. Fair enough. Um, Okay, (laughs) you are an attorney specializing in copyright, licensing, and so on. So like, the first thing I always wonder is like, how do people get created? Generally, I talk to artists, but in this case, I'm talking to attorneys. So like, how did you find that niche of like, any law in the world that you could have practiced that you found copyright and licensing and so on? As you'll hear from this interview, nothing in my life is simple. I had no intention of ever being a lawyer. I was an art and drama major in college, uh, acted professionally and sculpted and did prints and uh, had a little art gallery on the side to make ends meet. I took art Friday afternoons from students and went to this mall. They gave me the walls and I sold them over the weekend. What I didn't sell, I returned to the students on Monday. So I had no intention of ever being a lawyer. I was going to be an artist maybe or an actor. And then something uh, happened called the Vietnam War. And going to law school was a deferment to the Vietnam War. And since my draft number was 37, I thought it was a very good idea to go to law school since medical school just, you know, didn't fit in. So I applied to law school because it was a deferment. My dad had died a few years earlier, so I moved home to help with my mom. Went to law school with no intention of ever being a lawyer. I had worked as a tour guide in Europe that summer. And when I was in London, I went to this head shop down on whole Carnaby Street, if I date myself, and found these incredible artworks, bought a number of the prints, came home, showed them to all my friends, and they all went like ballistic. So I contacted the company and I became the first importer of MC Escher in the United States and set up a whole business out of my mom's basement and had half-page ads in every issue of Rolling Stone. We clipped it and had people selling to museums, shops, and bookstores. And that's what paid for me going to law school. I sold the business at the end of law school and had no responsibilities, money in the bank. So I did what anybody else did. I moved to Paris. I lived in Paris for a year acted with the American Theatre Company of Paris, sculpted at the Center for the Arts, learned, I I spoke no French when I got there, learned French, learned to cook, learned to drink very cheap wine, and had a wonderful time. And one day, a year later, I said, you know, everything's really perfect, I should leave. So that was on a Thursday, on a Tuesday, I was in Bangkok, and then spent another nine months hitchhiking, $2 a day, you know, local buses, trains all around Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, Laos, Java, Bali, Sumatra, you know, and during all the year and almost two years, I was making contact with artists and different artisans, came back, opened up two more art businesses. One was a retail art gallery, and one was a wholesale art business for all the art that I had found in my travels. Did that for a while, and then, you know, I was living with these two sisters, and I came downstairs, and Rita was at dinner with a friend, and I said, you know, I'm really tired of selling art, you know, I've been over like 10 years. I said, I don't really know what to do, and 
she piped up and said, well, you are a lawyer, you know. <laughs> so I said, yeah, but, you know, when I went to law school, I didn't do clerking. I never planned on being a lawyer. I didn't do anything, you know. So the Rita's friend said, I think my husband's looking for somebody. That was Wednesday. I had lunch with him on Friday, started working for him on Monday. It was a real small general practice, car accidents, a little cram, a little mid-mal, a little divorce. Miserable. Hated it. And I figured, though, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I've got to figure out I, this. I can't do this. I, you know, I, this is not my future. And so I made a list of what were the things in life that I enjoyed. My parents were you know, your typical, you know, active New Yorkers. We, their friends were writers and filmmakers and producers. And I was into I was a professional artist and a professional gallery owner and actor. So I made a list. Oh, and I was an early computer geek too. So I made a list of, you know, what I want, you know, what I'm interested in life. And I figured, okay, so I'm going to try to create this law practice that has art, entertainment, media, computers, and those kind of things in there. And I looked around and there was absolutely no such thing. This was before, the, you know, IP even was a term. There were no courses. There were no anythings. So I figured, I, okay, how am I going to do this? So I founded the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. There were three of us at the time, one in New York, San Francisco, and in Washington, where we provided pro bono legal services to indigent artists and low-budget art organizations. And that kind of got me a platform. All of a sudden, people started inviting me, not as young you know, lawyer in this ridiculous practice, but as the executive director of the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, I started giving speeches and writing articles and appearing on panels. And also, literally every night of the week, I would go to an art opening, I go to a theater opening, I go to a writer session, I go to a computer thing, you know, and I hand out cards. No, I'm a dance lawyer, I'm an art, a literary lawyer, I'm a computer lawyer, whatever it was, that's what I was. In trying to build this type of practice, I founded the DC Bar Sports Art and Entertainment section. I founded the DC Bar's Computer Law section. You know, these things just didn't exist. And then I met this guy named Ira Lowe. He had heard about my volunteer lawyers. And Ira was probably, if we were going to call people an art lawyer, the first art lawyer. He was an art lawyer because he used to date a lot of artists. He was older than I. But he also got friendly with the scene. And one of his buddies, who named him the executor of his will, was a guy named David Smith, probably the most well-known sculptor in 20th century America. So David dies and Ira becomes his executor. And so Ira is now, you know, big shot in the art world. So he and I had lunch one day, decided to work together. He had this giant rent control apartment in Georgetown. So one of the libraries was his office. One was mine. The living room was the conference room. I was the waiting room. The dining room became the conference room. The copier was in the kitchen. There's a porch. The secretary was in the porch. And in the back part, there was another bathroom and bedroom where Ira lived. And we started practicing. Well, he'd been practicing for a while. Ira was... 30 years older than I was. And one of my first clients was Joe Hershorn from the Hershorn Museum. And he kind of adopted me like his grandson. He would come over for, you know, Passover Seder to the house, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so every after party at all the museums, because of Joe and other, and Iris contacts, were always at our offices, you know, the end of the opening, and then everybody would come back to the office. So there I am, this 20-something-year-old, they're hanging out with everybody from, you know, Joe Hirshhorn to Larry Rivers to uh, John Steinbeck. I mean, 
we were doing Freedom of Information Act, so my clients were John Baez, Abby Hoffman, Amri Baraka, Allen Ginsberg. I mean, it was just, it, it, you know, an incredible thing. And then we started to grow the practice. So I took the apartment next door, cut the drywall in the closet from my office to, to the next apartment. So we expanded in there. And that's where and how it, you know, it's, it started. Long story, but that's how it started. It was a twisty road, but a, a deliberate road. It's an excellent story. It's a life worth lived there for sure. Okay, so now you are working, I would say, sounds like in comparison to some of your early years, like now a bit more corporate. Uh, you're working with an international sort of international group and you're doing really quite what I'm assuming is rather large stuff. But my big questions are always things like, okay, my background is I'm a photographer. So I'm always interested in like copyrights, model releases, all this kind of stuff. So like when I was in school, cause I'm 47. So you were talking 20 some odd years ago at this point, when I was in school, there were certain rules and laws and all this kind of stuff. But now of course with the internet, social media, all this other shit, everything's sort of out. I feel like is out the window. So like, let, let's sort of start with something as simple. I was born and raised in the United States, but I've lived in the Middle East. I've lived in Europe. So like I've been around a little bit. And one of the big questions, of course, like starting with the foundation of it is intellectual property. So intellectual property, I have the understanding that it's sort of country by country. So like if there are, cert there are certain laws in certain countries, but then even if you like copyright it in that country, if you go to another country or if somebody in another country steals it and it doesn't come into the country where it's copyrighted, then it's, it's kind of free reign, like kind of thing. Like, help me out, educate me. Well, first of all, one of the best things that happened to me that I was a computer geek because so much of what I do constantly changes because of the technology and at least I get to understand it. I mean, NFTs, God, how many conversations have I had in the last month? But, you know, as we change from limited edition prints where they all had to be huge warehouses full, you know, to print on demand, you know, from literary to eBooks, to music, from records, to CDs, the cassettes, to CDs, to downloads, you know, technology changes everything. And with the internet, it made a worldwide market. Everybody is a multinational. I you don't care if you're in Prague or Washington or London or Madagascar, if you post something to the internet, you're, you know, you're posting it to the world. So you get these questions that you never had before in terms of not only the intellectual property, but selling and labeling and warranties. I mean, all kinds of things come up. So everybody really is in a multinational corporation, although, you know, we think, oh, it's a mom and pop. Actually, it's not anymore. And there are a few international treaties and things, but you're absolutely right. IP law is, for the most part, outside of the EU, national. The EU has some transborder type of rules. Wait, let's go back one second, just because I want to make sure I'm even using the right terminology. Could you define uh, intellectual property for Oh, okay. Intellectual property, I think, breaks into f four categories, copyright, trademark, patent, and probably rights of publicity. And sometimes people consider trade secrets as well as, you know, depending on how you're de defining it. These are the intangible rights, basically, intellectual property. So if you think of intangibles, I think might be a, another way of categorizing 
uh, them. I don't know a patent from all well, those. I have a zillion patent lawyers who work at my firm. They all have PhDs and they all still have slot, you know, pocket protectors and, you know, all kinds of stuff. I, I, I defer to them. You know, they're, they're wonderful guys and gals that I don't know squat about it. But I do deal in a lot with copyright, trademark, right of publicity, you know, and some trade secret confidentiality stuff that's, that's always built into everything. But don't litigate much, much of that. Back in the day when I was learning this stuff, like intellectual property, there were always the, like, uh, like uh, I don't know what, like, uh, what's it called? Like, um, old wives tales or like, lots like of just things lots that are in the, yeah, like things like, oh, if you write it down and mail it to yourself, it's, it's somehow legally like done. And then there's, there's the, uh, like copyright, like if you create it, that you then are, the, you are the owner of it naturally for seven years but you have to file for a copyright on the thing or else you lose the copyright like i mean i've heard all and kinds they're of bad all wrong rumors, so please they are all good 100 wrong they are i mean it is just if you speak yiddish it's narishkeit otherwise it's all wives tale it's bs whatever term you want to use generally speaking in most countries to get a copyright all you have to do is create it period no more, no less. The, the brush leaves the canvas, the fingers leave the keyboard or the clay, you snap the shutter, and you have a copyright, period. End of story. You don't have to do anything else. Now, ideas are not generally protected. It's the expression of the ideas. So if I tell, if I say, hey, Matt, listen, I've got this really cool idea for this photograph. I'm going to stand here when the moon is there and this beautiful dogwood is flowering there. And I tell you all about it. You go and take the picture. I can't do anything about it. I have no rights to my idea. Now, you can have rights to ideas under their contractual type of thing saying, I want to share these ideas. And if you use them, I mean, you can protect them, but they're not inherent. You, know, you can have a contract or have an agreement saying, I'll pitch this story idea to you for this TV show, but you can't use it unless you have me as producer. You can do that. But if you don't lay the groundwork, if I just shooting the shit and giving you ideas, I'm giving them away. Okay. So in copyright, you fix them in a tangible form that could be on a tape, on a hard drive, on a canvas, on a keyboard, on a piece of paper. Once you fix it, you have it. Now, it varies depending on the medium and in the countries. General rule of thumb is life of the creating person plus 70 years. That is not universal. Some are, countries are life plus 50. Some have shorter range for photography. But, you know, if, if you're going to be talking about 85 to 90% of copyrights, they're probably life plus 70 especially in the literary and in the, uh, in the visual arts. Some countries with music and photography, like I say, shave it. And, you know, it's country by country. Europe, U.S., that's all life plus 70. Another area where people get real confused, which in the United States we have called work for hire. If you create something and you're an employee and you're doing it in the scope of your employment, the employer owns it, not you. That there's, it's a little less enforced in Europe than it is in the United States, and I can't speak to all the European, you know, laws in other countries. But you do have this work for hire concept, but which might be the exception to the, you know, the general rule. But you create it. Period. You don't mail it to yourself. You don't renew it or anything else. Now, some countries have registrations, 
but that gets you additional benefits. That doesn't get you your copyright. In the United States, for example, you don't have to register. But if you do, if before you can go to court and go after an infringer, you have to have a registration. If you want to get attorney's fees, you have to have a registration before the infringement began. If you want to get special damages, you have to get it's called statutory damages. You have to have a registration before, you know, beforehand. So the, you get enhanced. The carrot is that they are asking you to register and it gets you more benefits, but you don't have to register. No. So in terms of that, you don't mail it to yourself or, you know, any, you know, well, I guess if you mailed it to yourself, you never opened the envelope. If you wanted to prove when you created it, you could have the postmark, but I'm not sure that that gets you much. In trademark, you get a trademark by putting whatever the trademark is into commerce. Again, this is in the United States and I think in most countries. Once you have it on your product or on your website, on your hang tag, and then that product is shipped into commerce, then you have a trademark. And there's no time limits on a trademark generally. They last for as long as you're using them in commerce. So you could have a product that was created in 1850. As long as it's still around, let's say Coca-Cola was created in the 1800s, its trademark is still good because they're using it. Once you stop using something for three years, it's abandoned and somebody else can pick it up. You know, and so, you know, they're all different rights of publicity, which is you can't use somebody's name or likeness or signature or such for commercial purposes. You don't have that in England, for instance, and you have it really strong in the United States, but it's not federal in the United States. So you have 50 different right of publicity laws in the United States and they're different durations and they go. So, you know, it can get kind of cockeyed and, you know, start looking, well, where is the person, you know, living? Whose law applies? Oop, they're dead. Well, well, when you die, whose law applies? You know, and it, it gets it gets out there. So there is no one size fits all for any of this stuff. When we're talking about artworks though, so like let's take it to the digital world because really that's what everybody cares about these days. Because when I started out, I was I remember building websites, trying to build watermarks, put metadata in it, trying to do everything I can to like make it so people, you know, make it so people couldn't right click on my website sure. so they couldn't steal my image and all right. that stuff. None of that shit works. Well, a watermark will work if you have a nice good watermark on it and somebody tries to reproduce it. I mean, if you're going to sit there and try to pixelate it piece by piece out, there's so many artworks that you can get knocked off, though technically it's possible. It's generally not worth a counterfeiter. There's literally hundreds of millions of images that they can knock off without having to deal with pixelate and then really putting it back in. So when you look at it, it really looks perfect. You know, because if you do it very well, it still doesn't look right. Well, there's now software that can remove watermarks very well. well so, yeah, they're the Digimark kind of things, but there are things that you know you can try to do. But I encourage people to watermark it because your run-of-the-mill infringer is not going to bother. They, just, it, you know, it's just it's just not worth their while. It's there's so many other things you know to knock off. But yeah, no, I mean, one of the things about the internet is on one hand, it's giving you a world market. So you're an artist in Prague and, you know, you can sell to somebody in Cape Town without leaving your apartment, which is terrific. But that means, you know, somebody in Cape Town or in China or in Russia, more likely, can rip you off as well. And most countries uh, or a lot of countries, most countries where the big infringements come, you don't get governmental support. If somebody rips you off in China or in Russia and other places like that, or Bulgaria, you know, that number of places, you know, you're pretty much without a remedy there. 
but at least under U.S. law, which I can speak to, everybody in the chain is liable. So the person who manufactured the knockoff in China is liable. The shipper to the United States is liable for distributing without consent. The importer in the United States is liable. The distributor in the United States is liable. And the store that sells it in the United States is liable. And I'm pretty sure that's similar in Europe. So that way, I may not be able to sue the guy in China, but I can sue any one of or all of those five people in the United States or in Europe that I can reach. I can sue the store, I can sue the distributor, and I can get pick and choose. Oh, this one has no money. I'm not going to bother suing him or her or it, but I'm going to sue this one because they have money. I can pick and choose. If nothing else, it's their profits. And, you know, so I go all of a sudden to the importer and I say, okay, you made $10,000 on importing this infringing thing. Well, your distributor made $12,000 and the retail store made $25,000 because, you know, everybody marks them up. So you want to settle this case. I want $75,000. He goes, but I only made 10. I said, that's your problem or else I'm going to sue your customers. And then they're going to, you know, they'll indemnify upstream. So I'll sue the big box. They'll sue the distributor who's going to sue you. So you can either pay me the 75000 and be done with it or ruin your relationships with everybody and then pay the $75,000 in a year and a half from now after we go to court. So, you know, it usually takes a few phone calls for it to sink in and stuff. But then they get pissed at the guy in China who sold them the infringing goods and, you know, they then try to get the money from the guy in China. And that's their problem. I don't worry about it. Or they stop doing business with the guy in China, you know, so that, you know, you can have some backward pressure, although it's nominal, you know, I think. So even though if the sales are occurring in jurisdictions that do police, you're not without remedies, even if you can't get to the source in a country that doesn't enforce IP or encourages the theft of IP, as the case may be. How does that equate to like social media and all that kind of stuff? Because I, at one point I remember Instagram was saying they had a thing in their clause saying that any picture you put on Instagram, they have the right to use for advertising. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you people don't read terms and conditions. You go on a website and you click, I accept, and you go from there and nobody reads the terms and conditions. Website, again, this is U.S. law. If there's no I accept click button, if it just says terms and conditions and tiny little printed, you know, in gray at the bottom and you have to click on, those are not enforceable. So if those terms and conditions say that, but once you do I accept or I, I agree or whatever those kinds of click, we call them click licenses, those are enforceable. And yeah, a lot of people were real surprised when they saw some of these websites that in their terms and conditions said, you grant me the right to do this and you grant me the right to, you know, to do that. And you were, you were granting a license, you know, and then backlash, some of them have backed off on it. But I mean, I litigated cases, you know, representing infringers on certain Twitter terms and conditions, you know, which granted rights and stuff like that. So read the terms and conditions or you're going to be unpleasantly, you know, surprised. They, you, you have to understand when you, you know, you go on something free, you and your stuff is the product. They're not giving you anything for free. They're selling, you know, your your data, your imagery and everything else. That's They're there to make money, not to provide a public service. So, you know, you have to think through how they're going to make money. And, you know, besides selling every detail about your life, they're going to sell your product if you're not careful when you post it. Yeah, I know. 
it, 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 it's the what's the saying they're using these days? It's like if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Exactly, that is the little cute buzz line. Yes, that's out there. Isn't that? And yeah, it's, true. it's cute. It works. Yeah. It's it's memorable. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I want to know a little bit more about like sort of the fine arts industry that you sort of help out mm -hmm. with. It could be literary, it could be visual arts. Of course, I'm visual arts. I'm, that's my biggest interest. But like, do you? What are most of your work? Like, do you work on behalf of artists, on behalf of collectors, institutions, or the opposite direction, like uh, suing institutions or collectors or artists? I've worked across this. Every both sides of the thing over the year. More likely than not, I represent artists, collectors, and galleries, and then negotiate on the other side with other collectors, you know, who are buying this stuff. And I also do a lot of negotiations with auction houses. And people think auction terms are written in stone. And if you're the seller, they're not. If you're the buyer, you're stuck. But there's lots of negotiations there, you know, loan agreements, you know, or you represent artists who, you know, high-end artists who have, you know, galleries who want exclusives and, you know, those kind of deals, loan agreements, a lot of uh, art licensing. Art licensing is an $8 billion a year business in the United States alone. You know, that could be from screensavers to mouse pads to postcards to posters to puzzles to imagery on sheets and pillowcases and on plates i mean it's it's an it's an unending thing and you know so there are all kinds of you know i sort of represent most most of those artists and in that business a lot of most artists have agents because it, this is the nature of the beast. Artists don't know plate manufacturers and they don't take out booths at the, tr the licensing shows and stuff. I, I More than that, anything, I end up representing the creator side. But, you know, the user side as well, you know, my firm, Venable, is 850 lawyers, you know, with office in New York, L.A., Washington, Chicago. You know, we're all in the United States, although we have a very large international set of business as well. But... We represent some, you know, some of the top, you know, Fortune 100 companies and 500 companies. And I'm called in a lot to help on the IP parts. It could be a merger and, you know, what rights can you do and what rights can't you do? You know, it could be we're doing an ad campaign and they need to know, you know, getting releases from people. It, you know, there's just so I work a lot with major corporations through my partners. They're generally not my particular clients, but I'm called in to help out on movie deals. And, you know, in the last few years, there's a lot of termination right issues. We're on the U.S. law. Again, I can't speak to any place else after 35 years, authors and authors under copyright are musicians, writers, everybody. They're just called authors under the Copyright Act. They're all the creative people. After 35 years, they have a right to terminate any license or assignment of copyright and recover it because it's recognized that the, uh, generally the unbalanced playing field that an artist or an author or a musician have, especially early in their career. So if that product still has legs after 35 years, and obviously 90-whatever percent don't, you know, they come and they go. But, you know, there's a, look, think of all the Beatle music, that's all over 35 years old. I mean, if you start going back, there's, you know, a lot of stuff that's there. So in the United States, you have a right, it's a very complicated, well, it's not a complicated, it's a interesting procedure to terminate assignments and licenses after 35 years. And you cannot, by law, waive that right 
any contract that says I waive my termination rights is void. I mean, you, you, I mean, the statute specifically says that because at the same time, if you have no leverage when you're negotiating the first contract, of course they're going to say, uh, <laughs> and you waive your rights as well. So you know, you you can't those those things are not enforceable. So that you know was in the 1978 Act. So 35 years has come up in the last few years. So we've been doing a bunch of termination rights work as well on both sides, people terminating them or clients trying to figure out a way not to get their rights terminated. That's interesting because my grandfather was a uh, scientist. Does this does this go to science as, as well or is it just like the this arts would, and creativity? This is copyright. The termination right is, you know, is copyright. So if he wrote, you know, articles about it or books about it, that could, you know. Oh, uh, no, he, he created Thousand Island Dressing. But he was working for McCormick Foods, and under his employment, it's theirs. Again, in the work for hire, the employer is considered the author, right? So right. the actual human is, doesn't exist in a work for hire situation. And so this right only goes to individual authors' rights or musicians' rights. It doesn't, the corporations don't get a second bite at the apple. We're not worried about their, you know, their ability to negotiate a fair deal for themselves up front. So it only goes to individual authors, and they don't exist in a work for hire situation. Fair enough. All right, what's the what's the one thing that you've noticed through your career that most creative people are completely unaware of legally? That's an interesting one. Since only so many people in the arts are so clueless to any of their rights, it's hard to pinpoint one. It's, uh, you know, for- <laughs> you, can say, you can say multiples, that's fine. But you see, the thing, it's an interesting thing because when I first started practicing, it was like considered a bad thing to worry about your business as an artist or something. It was, oh, that's too commercial. And all the dealers would say, oh, my handshake is my bond, you know, and it would be insulted you know, when you actually put, wanted to put something in writing, of course, they were ripping you off blind. And, you know, God forbid you, you know, you would call them on it and say, well, can we just put that down in writing that? Oh, no, I never would do that. That's changed a huge amount, you know, since I've been practicing. That is no longer the norm. Now people expect things in writing and artists have become a lot more savvy to their rights. You know, many times it's, you know, you get ripped off once and you learn your lesson. It often takes getting ripped off. You know, like why I really recommend people register in the United States, their copyrights for all the additional protections. And none of the artists want to bother doing it. It's very inexpensive. It's easy to do. It's on Now it's online and everything. And then all of a sudden they come to me with a perfect infringement case. You know, there's no question they got ripped off and everything else. And they haven't, they don't have a registration. So first of all, I have to get the registration in order to file suit. But it, because of a backlog, it may take six months to get the registration. So you can't file suit for six months. You get an injunction. Now, if you want to do it up front, you can get it expedited, but that's $810. And that would be per image. So if you got knocked off for a few images, it starts getting expensive instead of about $6 an image. If you do uh, 10 unpublished on one application or $8 at this point, you know, then, then you have to wait. And then they say, okay, we, we contact the other side. We find out that they sold their, their, its profit. So we find out that their profit on this was $10,000, $20,000. You know, we, we nipped it in the bud. It wasn't a giant thing. And my client, you know, well, let's sue them. I said, well, your legal fees are going to be more than $20,000. I mean, yeah, you have a perfectly good case, 
but you know, I can negotiate this for a few grand, but if they don't want to play ball, if they say, so sue me, it's going to cost you more than you can earn. Now, if you had filed the registration, like I told you to, you can get attorney's fees and you can get up to $150,000 in damages, no matter what they earned. So, you know, they go through that once and they learn their lesson and they start filing for their copyright registrations. You know, it's, it's a lesson learned more often than not the hard way. But, you know, a lot of art schools, I know I taught at the Corcoran for years, you know, a course. Uh, I know you, I know you went, I saw that. Yeah, I was a required course for a number of years and I brought in accountants and gallery owners and it was a survival curriculum, we called it. When did you do that? Because I, one of my big complaints about the Corcoran was that I never learned any of that stuff. It was probably in the late 70s or early 80s, one of the deans said, this is important and made it a mandatory course. No one wanted to take it. It should and be. everybody was delighted at the end. A new dean came in and made it an elective and no one signed up for it. So it was probably in the early, yeah, it was probably in the early 80s, I guess, is when we did that. But I've spoken at I, literally countless art groups, different places, art schools and stuff like that where it's not a course, but I, I taught for 29 years, art and entertainment law, two different courses at American University Law School for a while at GW Law School. Today, there are zillions of books out there. There are classes online. I mean, today to get the basic education you need, you know, there's, I mean, I co-wrote licensing for dummies. I mean, there are dummies books out there. I mean, you go online, you know, and you, you know, do it art law book, you know, legal books for artists, and you're going to get 30 of them popping up. So the info is there. I agree, but it's always hard because I feel like, now this may be just a me thing, but I feel like every like every case is so unique. Like, so like reading these, these vague overview ideas of like what a law can and can't do is always a bit too obtuse. And it's never, you never go like, oh, it's exactly that that is what I have my legal problem with. And so it's really hard to get that sort of differentiation of like, without, of course, a legal knowledge, your, your skills, like knowing whether or not there's actually a legal case there or not. And then, of course, the big problem is, is the being the knowing whether it's financially worth the effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, people having one-off problems, I agree with you. I have a lot of clients who I've trained, you know, we've gone through this year after year and they're real good at it. Yeah, look, there's certain kind of things that are really nuanced and everything else, but you run of the mill infringement once you, you know, do it. So today with one of my clients, very, very well-known artist, one of the top artists in the world, he has a staff where we do probably anywhere from 150 to 300 takedowns a month for him, you know, where people putting his stuff up and, you know, we do. So we're doing a training for their staff so that the staff can do it in-house. I've done countless trainings on copyright registrations for, you know, it can be just a couple of people or a large company so they can do it in-house. You know, there's that oxymoron, reasonable attorney's fees. There is no such thing. So, you know, when we do it, it costs them money. So a lot of my clients, you know, learn how to do it in-house. My licensing clients, you know, I draft them a basic form we go through it. I explain every clause and say why you don't want to take it out or why you can take this one out or not. You know, and then after a couple of times, you know, I do the first few, then, you know, we jointly do them and then they run with it. And then they just call me up and say, this one's a little different. I'm not quite sure how to handle it. Or somebody, they've asked to change this. No one else has ever asked to change that. But, you know, they learn, 
most of the deals people have are this similar from deal to deal to deal. It's the nature of the business. They have a business and it's a, there's a lot of repetition. So they can be trained pretty well to do it on their own, uh, you know, a lot of things. And then, but always know if you're the least bit concerned that something's a little different, then pick up the phone and have a 10 minute call with me or whoever your lawyer is. I'm not looking for business. Your 10 minute call for, you know, with your lawyer and just say, look, there's this one point, you know, they, they want to change. Does it matter? And you can say, nah, that was a, you know, a giveaway or no, you definitely don't want to go there. That's really important. You know, sometimes in a form contracts, we put stuff in that we know we can give away, you know, as part of the negotiation strategy. So, you know, you don't want to budge on these. You can budge on these. So when they ask to budge on this, give them that. Don't give them this, you know, and it's just part of the, the thing. And I, beat up my clients regularly when they asked me for a form contract. They said, I will draft you one and I will kill you if you ever use it. You know, forms are good for everything and they're good for nothing. You know, you have to look at every single deal and, you know, put, I mean, I see people do, you know, use, oh yeah, I got this form off the internet or I used this form 10 years ago and it doesn't apply. And, you know, it's not, you know, and you go nuts. And so forms scare me, you know, I draft them all the time, but they scare me. Okay, wait, I want to know, like, from a legal standpoint, because I've never actually asked an attorney this, so this is great. When let's say you write a contract, so let's say you're an artist in a gallery or, or doing a licensing fee, whatever it is, doesn't matter. How many signatures, what form of signatures, like what, what makes it a legally binding document? So let's start backwards. You cannot bind by silence. Okay. So if you send somebody something and saying, and if I don't hear from you, I assume you agree. That doesn't work. Period. You cannot yeah. buy. Okay. You can bind by action though, or by signature. And signatures today, again, in the US, electronic signatures are okay. So people sign stuff, make a PDF and send it. We also talk about counterparts where I sign one page, I sign a signature page and you sign a separate signature page and we send the PDF, you know, to everybody else. And then essentially you literally or figuratively staple the pages together, you know, so you have two signature pages or five signature pages that all works. Well, like I've, I've also had like where like some people say initial on every page. That's a matter of so no one can swap out the page. In other words, I've seen that happen too. You know, I, here's the contract. That's not my page three. <laughs> Somebody has changed page three on you. And, you know, so the initialing is just an evidentiary thing. It's not a binding. Very few contracts. Again, I, I don't know in Europe, you know, with no tour and, and, and stuff. You don't notarize things in the United States unless it's going to be a recorded document. So when people send you a license agreement, artist gallery agreement, a book publishing agreement, if there's a notary clause that somebody doesn't know what they're doing, you don't notarize those. You don't need to notarize those documents, especially in the t- age of COVID where no one could go out for a year. I mean, that was really a headache when people would say, oh, this needs to be notarized. No, we're not going to die for your, you know. So, but no, basically you want something signed. Now, they're different kind of electronic signatures. I mean, again, in the United States, if you send an email and you have slash S slash and then type your name, that's considered a, an electronic signature. I sign things and then scan them in generally. You know, you have DocuSign. I mean, there are a lot of all those things, at least in the United States, they're literally, it, they're statutes, the Electronic Signatory Act and stuff that uh, allow that. You know, other countries, you know, that are more paper hidebound, you know, you still might have to get, you know, things signed in triplicate and sealed and stuff, you know, by, you know, some bureaucrat or something like that. I 
can't say that, you know, you know, I, I've heard of, you know, people saying, well, I have to get the notaire and the this and the, the. you know, that's other countries. But in the U.S., you can do anything. You can also bind by action saying that I will send you the money and then, you know, it, you know, you agree to this. And if you cash the check that, you know, you agree. And then when you cash the check, that is binding. That's an action. You can bind by action. You can bind by forbearance. If you have the legal right to do something and you don't do it, that can also be a binding contract. But it has to be some kind of action, be it you're writing your name down, you're typing your name down, you're doing something affirmatively, you're not doing something affirmatively that you have the right to do and we're planning on doing. Those can all bind you in a contract. What you can't do is silence. That's, you know, and people do. I say, I, I, you know, I see that all the time. If I don't hear from you, I assume you agree. And that's very dangerous to depend on that. But I want to be like extremely pedantic about this. The, what I'm talking about is when, let's see, like, so like in the old days, I used to do model releases. And so the, I would sign it and the model would sign it. And then we would have a witness sign it. And then we would also put addresses of that witness kind of thing. Like, I mean, it's like how elaborate do you have to be? That's evidentiary. That's later. If the model says I never signed it, that's not my signature. Well, that is always the concern. That is, yeah, no, the, the evidentiary part is it. Now, certain things like wills require by statute. In some states, it's two witnesses and some it's three, you know. So there are statutes where there are things. But in your regular contract, those things are just for the purpose of being able to prove it later on. Also, sometimes you see in paren the word seal after a signature. That's a real old fashioned thing that adds certain, can, if it's under seal, it, I think the statute of limitations is longer. There, you know, there's certain kinds of things that I, I, you don't see it much anymore, but periodically you still see an old form that pops up with under seal. Yeah, no, but all that stuff, name, address, you know, it's nice to have it all there. So you know who to send the W, you know, the tax form to. If you need to contact them later on about, you know, you granted me a release to use this in a magazine. Now somebody wants to use it online. So you know how to find the person. It's a practical thing. It's the signature, you know, because if you just have some squirreled signature, that's not my signature. You know, I, you know, know, and, you know, people sign with their left hand on purpose when they're right-handed to make the signature, you know, not look right. But, you know, you know, you're the, you're the photographer, you know, you got a model to sign it. You don't know if she signed it King Kong, you know, you haven't paid any attention to it. So, you know, it's for those kind of purposes. One big question I have now, my parents are getting older and they have a little bit of an art collection. I'm an artist and I, of course, have all the work I've made throughout my life. And so I'm starting to begin to think about uh, what I've been told is like legacy planning or sort of estate planning Mm -hmm. for both collectors as well as practicing artists. What what is some advice or some information you can give me on like what we while we're still sort of <laughs> smart and 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 cognizant that we should do to try to make that go easier and smoother? So again, I'm going to talk. You know, I'm assuming it's similar in other countries, but U.S. law. If you don't have a will, you actually do have a will. It's just you don't get to dictate the terms of it. If you die in test state without a will, every state in the United States has a statute which says if somebody dies in testate, this is how their estate is going to be divided. So that becomes your will. And it may not be your will, pun intended, you know, the, the way you wanted it to go, 
consanguinity. That's the fancy term. It's the, for how things are divided up. It, it's the rule of consanguinity. You know, half to the spouse, if there is no surviving spouse, to the children and the share, and if there's no children, to the nieces and them. Again, you know, you may hate your spouse or you may hate your, you know, your brother and they're going to get half of your estate. I mean, you know, so if you want to direct what's going to happen to your art or your literary, your copyrights or your book copyright, you want to have a will and a will is a living document. You change it. Like I'm in the process right now of changing my will probably probably the fourth time I've changed it in my life, you know, because my kids are now older and their, their needs are different. And so we're, you know, we're going to switch things around. So you, you should think of your will again as a living thing periodically, you know, and I had specific bequests to certain, you know, one of the things in mind that my personal executor, personal representative, my executor should give a gift of special meaning and I list like seven or eight friends, you know, it's just, yeah, it wasn't money. I just, you know, I have a big art collection. I have all kinds, you know, just give them. Well, I took two people off the list and added somebody else because I'm not as friendly with those people anymore. You know what I mean? And I haven't somebody else I've gotten friendlier with. So, I mean, it could be, you know, all kinds of things, you know, where one of your kids is doing incredibly well and another kid is not doing so well. So, you know, you don't want to have an equal distribution anymore. Or one of your kids is a became an accountant and one became an art dealer. So you want the accountant son or daughter to become the personal representative as to the financial, but you have a second personal representative to handle your copyrights, your artistic, your literary works. So that way the person who knows, you know, and then you, you know, has the artistic sensibility to do it, and the, but you never want him or her to touch your money, you know, and so you have the other, you know, your, your, your cousin or whoever, to, you know, the accountant to, you know, take care of that. You can do all these things in your will. You know, I want to give this to this and I want to do this to this and this one I want to take care of it. But you do want to plan. Now, a lot of it is tax motivated, you know, and how you, you know, when you, you know, I'm going to give stuff away rather than have it in my estate. And, you know, there are different kinds of things like that. Also, selling things and giving the money to your kids, you end up paying a certain tax, but if they inherit it, they don't have to pay income tax. I mean, there are all kinds of different things that one should be aware of when they're doing it. If you're an artist, oh, so one of the things, artists or collectors, this happens not infrequently. I'm going to leave this to this museum. Mm -hmm. Have you talked to the museum about it? No. You have any clue if they want it? Well, of course they want it. It's a wonderful collection. You talk to the museum, no, thank you. And sometimes they don't even, you know, they just say, I'm leaving it to this museum. And they don't even leave, a, say, a clause like, and if they don't want it to any other tax exempt museum, you know, you know, it's just to this. So then you're leaving your personal representative in a terrible quandary. The museums, most museums don't want your stuff, okay? Bottom line, they don't. Trust me, I've gone through this so many, so many times. Most museums don't want your stuff. I don't care how wonderful and terrific it is and how many years you spent collecting it. They don't want it, okay? Uh, unless, of course, you're going to give them a nice big check to endow it. Then they're happy to take it. They will put it in the basement. They will never see the light of day, and they will take your money and use it for good purposes. That's the reality of you know donating to a museum. Now, if you do have a kind of collection or artworks in a museum once, you know, I would talk to them ahead of time, you know, work it out. Now, museums, of course, if you have something or eager to get some kind of document signed that is irrevocable, that is binding on your heirs, 
because you know they're concerned that you might change your mind. Now, if you're representing the collector, you don't want them to sign that. You, know, you want them to have you know the ability to change their mind. If you're representing the institution, of course, you want to you know you tie it down. Museums now are selling art much more than they ever did in the past. It used to be a total no-no. So now, if you're making a deed of gift, you may want to put that in. Now, also collectors and artists. Even if they're giving it to somebody who wants it, they start putting all these restrictions on. It has to be shown and it has to have my name on it. And it ha- that's a most of the time a kiss of death. They'll say, thank you, but no thank you. We don't want gifts with strings attached. So there's often negotiation as to, you know, the more strings, the less likely anybody wants your stuff. If you want to control it after death, you may be buried with the painting. You know, uh, just don't get cremated because that violates the moral rights of the artist and you can't destroy the works. <laughs> They'll exhume you and, you know. So, you know, no, so there's, there should be planning. That you, basically, you can end up doing pretty much anything you want, you know, if you plan it right. Oh, and the other thing is artists, you know, they put values on their artwork that they've never sold them for, but they sold one piece for $2,000. So they, every the whole 200 pieces in the attic are now worth $2,000 a piece. They've never sold anything besides that one piece for more than 50 bucks at a local show. Well, they die and the IRS says, okay, 2,000 times, you know, 200 pieces in your attic. That's, you know, you owe estate tax on that. And then they, the film says, we can't sell this stuff for 50 bucks. What are you talking? Well, that's what they, they valued it at. So you want to be careful on how you value stuff as the artist or as the, you know, you know, it's just problematic. And of course, you know, if you say it's worth nothing, but you've been insuring it for a lot, you know, the IRS can say, well, let's look at the insurance policy. And that works both ways. People want to avoid estate tax, so they don't list stuff in the estate tax returns. It's called the empty nail syndrome. You know, they mom and dad had died and they take the painting off the wall. So all that's left is an empty nail. So they think no one's going to know about it. And, you know, they might get away with it. Of course, you know, if it's been insured for the last 20 years and the IRS sees the insurance policy with this painting listed on it, and there's no gift return or no estate return listing this painting or sculpture or whatever, you know, you can get busted. Yeah, there, there are lots of different issues with estate planning for artists and collectors. If you're in the high end, you probably have some very good tax people working, you know, with you and stuff like that. But everybody who's an artist or an author or a musician who owns intellectual property should think of after they're gone, what do they want to, you know, they want it donated or who do they want to be in charge of, you know, do you want your jingle, your song to be used on, uh, you know, on a jingle for this kind of product? You, know, you say, yeah, if it makes money, great. Or God, no, you know, so you should have somebody who understands your sensibilities as to the exploitation of your intellectual property. But okay. So, but as practicing artists that are still alive and able to effectively and efficiently sort of plan out this future after we're dead kind of thing like what what are some things that that you've seen that artists have made mistakes so that we can learn from other people's mistakes uh to not do uh incorrectly either not have a will or have some kind of boilerplate will that they've gotten offline or from you know from a friend or somebody else that doesn't deal with the artistic elements in it now copyrights and all that, they are considered property. So if you don't mention them in your will, and every will has, any will that's even rudimentary has a residuary clause in it, which says, 
all the rest and remainder of my estate, I hereby, you know, give this, divide it, whatever. So if you don't mention your intellectual property, your paintings, your copyrights and your books or anything that, it falls into the residuary clause and is divided accordingly. So now you have three of your kids, all co-owners of the copyrights in your book. And, you know, this one wants to license it to a movie. This one doesn't. This one wants to do a sequel. This one because you haven't given it any thought. So now you have your three kids fighting over how to exploit your, you know, should we sell the artwork? Do we donate the artwork? You haven't planned it. You haven't done anything. So it's going to go in your residuary estate. And, you know, it's, it's a free for all at that point. What you really want to do is think about it and plan, you know, what, what you want. You know, everybody's different. You know, they have different siblings, different kids that, you know, you know, some people couldn't care less what happens after death. Others don't want to pay the tax person a penny and they'll go through incredible hoops you know, to the detriment of everything else, not to pay taxes. Other people say, I, this is what I want to happen. And if you have to pay more taxes, fine. I don't care. But this is what I want to happen. You know, and there's no right or wrong. It's just... If you don't plan, it's not going to go well for your kids, your spouses, your, you know, or anybody. Your art, uh, your artistic properties are probably not going to be managed the way you want. And you're looking for a family fight that you're going to cause. Fair enough. All right. You brought up an, having your own art collection. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested. So like, what kind of art do you collect? I'd say most of it have been gifts. I probably have about 350. Well, I know I have 350 pieces because actually this year, if it was one of my COVID projects, you know, going online, doing auction searches or just, you know, going to websites where they're selling the art, trying to figure out what it's worth. You can't really ask somebody. Well, sometimes you can, it depends on the relationship. You know, that gift you gave me, how much is it worth? You know, it's, it's for insurance purposes. It's still tacky. But I would say... Probably out of my 350 pieces, 300 were gifts. So it's everything you can imagine from the most abstract to the most photorealistic, you know, everything in between, some very well known artists to incredibly talented no names. You know, it's also the, you know, we were talking about art licensing. I, you know, I have some gifts from my collection, incredible works. These people have never had a gallery show. Make five hundred thousand dollars a year licensing their imagery on checks and on T-shirts and on greeting cards and on you know all kinds of properties. Never heard of them. Totally wonderful. You know they were not artists with a capital A. Don't tell me what to do. I'm creating. You know somebody says I need a sweet-looking kid pulling a radial flyer red wagon. You know in a farm setting, and they create a beautiful one. And it's on a zillion products, you know, and they're, you know, and they're doing quite well. I think the most that I ever had a client, I had one client who had $75 million worth of licensed products on the shelves. And that's not what they made, but that was at retail in, in a given year. So, you know, he was making, for those things, let's say average about 5%, which is the royalty you would get on $75 million. You know, so that's what he was making every year just on licensing. He also had, a, you know, some stuff in galleries, but so, you know, they're different. There are a lot of different art worlds, you know, out there. There's the one we all read about, the New York art world, the auction, the big thing. 
most people buy their art, you know, at Bed Bath and Beyond, you know, uh, you know, frame things for sixty nine ninety five. I mean, that's where most people get their art from poster stores. If you're going to go high end, they buy a limited edition print for two hundred and fifty bucks. You know, they go to an art fair on the street and buy works for one hundred and fifty bucks. That's where most people get their art. I mean, we don't read about that, of course. We read about the, you know, Bebby's sixty five million dollars for his NFT and Coons, you know, just broke the record, but that's the veneer. I mean, the real art world in terms of most people who buy art, that's not the art world that they deal in. And, you know, I deal in that world a lot, but I also deal in the other world, you know, where most people, you know, get their art. I have a lot of clients, you know, who basically sell posters, you know, and they sell them by the millions every year. You know, you walk into a hotel, we do a deal with Hilton, it's 10,000 posters, you know, of different artists. That puts a lot of money in the artist's pocket. You know, and more people see that art in the hotel rooms than see something on uh, on the wall of somebody on Park Avenue, you know? So, yeah. Indeed. Oh, yeah. When I was uh, just out of college, I worked at a stock photography agency. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the clients of the agency, they saw, they took the stupidest, most boring, like uninspired photos I've ever seen in my entire life. But... They at at that time had been like what nineteen ninety five. They were making a million dollars a year profit. Yeah, by taking this horribly unknown, interesting stuff. But he licensed them to like textbooks sure. and and just like any publication that just needed an image to illustrate. You need something. Somebody had a copier machine, right? Everybody who sells copiers, everybody has an office. You know, they wanted anybody who's marketing anything in the office. They need a photograph of somebody or two people standing at a copier. But they'll sell 100,000 licenses for people standing at the copier at 50 bucks a piece or 75 bucks a piece. You know, these aren't high end, but you multiply 10,000, you know, sales at 50 bucks a piece. And that's real money, even though each individual one isn't. Again, in the art licensing, it, it, to a great extent, it's a penny business. The average license anywhere from four to 10 percent, you know, of the wholesale price. So if you have that's not for prints or cards. That's a different thing. But let's say, you know, you have a beach blanket, right? With an image on it. The beach blanket goes for 20 bucks. Wholesale is 10 bucks. So your artist is getting 50 cents, you know, on that $20 sale. But if they sell 200,000 blankets and you're getting 50 cents a blanket, you just made $100,000 just on that blanket. So it's a penny business, but, but it's a volume business. And you know, there are a lot of artists who've done very well never seen the inside of a gallery you know it's it's a different part of the art world all right last last like formal question um certificates of authenticity Mm -hmm. because you talked about like the you know the the art the auction houses the galleries the collectors all this kind of stuff how elaborate should they be because like i when i was young i probably didn't do them at all but these days i'm rather obsessive about my certificates of authenticity okay you're holding up a book fine art print disclosure laws that sounds like it would cover yeah. it did, again did, I can't, did you write this yeah book? that was mine i can't speak to again outside the united states in the united states 14 states including new york and california the ones that really matter have fine art print disclosure laws which require they mandate certificates of authenticity. They mandate what has to be in those. The other 14 states, you know, do it as well. Okay, wait, hold on. This is just for prints or multiples. this is all no, art? No, multiples. Work? 
multiples. Prints and okay. sculptures, anything a limit. These are limited edition. Okay, so like an original one of a kind painting does not need a certificate of authenticity. Only something that's done in multiples under the statutes. If you sell just a one-off painting and it's secondary market, obviously you're buying it from the artist. You know, you get a bill of sale and it's from the artist, so you don't really need a whole lot of authenticity you're getting it from the artist secondary market when you're buying from a gallery from a collector on the invoice you want to make sure that there are reps and warranties that they have good title that this isn't original as you know as described they have the right to sell it i mean there are a number of things that you want to get that with the gallery or the collector is repping making the representations and the warranties that you need to have somebody to go back because otherwise I'll say, I sold it as is. I made no reps. You know, I didn't know if it was real or not. You know, it's sold as is. And you can, again, if you're not sure of stuff, you can write on there sold as is. And then you're not making any reps. We make no reps. So this is sold as is. I, you know, you can say, I have no knowledge of any claims. Uh, I have no knowledge that it's not authentic, but I'm not repping it because I got it, you know, from 13 people, you know, before I have no idea and I'm selling it as is. So you can do that. The limited edition things back in the 70s and 80s, limited edition prints exploded. Before that, prints was a very connoisseur, tiny market of etchings and intaglios and woodcuts and when I'm saying lithographs in the old sense with the big giant stones and stuff like that, it was a connoisseur market. Then all of a sudden, everybody started making these limited edition prints, either offset or more fancy, you know, lithographs. There's a lot of silk screens became big. And I know as on college, I was making, I did a few stones, mostly silk screens and stuff. Because you could use your camera and do, you know, all kinds of things, transfer it. So what happened was, you know, there's money, there's fraud, right? So you would go and buy a, a limited edition print. And, you know, it'd be on the right-hand side, there'd be a signature of the artist with a, a year. And on the left-hand side, there'd be a, a fraction, you know, three over 50, you know, 16 over, you know, 450, which to most people meant, okay, the bottom number is the size of the edition. And this is the number, you know, in the edition. Now, of course, it was hype, depending on what the dealer had. Oh, the low numbers are good. No, the high numbers are good. It was all bullshit. But, you know, what, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whatever number they had, there was a reason why that was the best number in the edition. But the problem was that the bottom number, which in a sense, the scarcity, you know, so the smaller the edition, theoretically, the thing. So what people would do is they'd make multiple editions. They would sell you an edition of 150 and then sell another edition of 150, or they would change it slightly. They would call this one the standard collect edition, this one the deluxe edition, this one the European edition, this one the remarked edition. So actually, this edition of 150, oh, then there would, of course, be 50 artist proofs and then 50 printer proofs, you know, so you have AP and PP on them and stuff. So all of a sudden, you think you're buying an edition of 150 and you're actually buying an edition of 1,000. And then people would think they were signed by the artist and they weren't they either signed by somebody else or I love I coined this expression, original signature mechanically applied for an auto pen. And, you know, they would say it was done at this atelier, which was a famous one when it wasn't. And so, you know, there were and what happens to the image afterwards. You know, so all these things. So they would just lie. Uh, and then you have people like Dolly who signed 50,000 sheets of blank paper so that, you know, people would then print his stuff. And they, so th the, the market just went totally out of control.
So the states that passed the fine art print disclosure laws basically said, you can do sub editions, but you've got to disclose the whole side. So in our example, it would say total edition size 1000 comprised of 150 standard edition, 150 European. And then they say where they were printed. Was it posthumous? How it was signed? By whom? What are the uses of the image you know, there were? All these things, there are at least 14 things generally on these certificates of authenticity that are mandated by the, the state. And like I said, some you know, some states say you have to say if it's on acid-free paper, for instance, you know, because other ones did. So this went to multiples because that's where the that's where the I'm just looking to see. All right, so California says well, here, while you're looking, I want to throw this. I like for me with my certificate of authenticity, I actually do a hologram matching numbered hologram sticker on the mm -hmm. back of the print and on the certificate of Great. authenticity to make sure that people know that they're connected as well. Mm -hmm. Like, is this, is that a legal thing or no. is it, am I just being smart? You're being smart, but also the thing is, what's so funny is so making lemonade out of lemon. So people had to do this certificates of authenticity. So they made them look like stock certificates. They put the artist's picture on them, the artist's statement, their thumbprint. So that they made it as part of their marketing was this really fancy, cool looking certificate of authenticity. The hologram, you know, all all great. That's not required by any of the statutes, but it, it's ultra. But the interesting thing though is, and this is why probably every online website that sells art is illegal, uh, at least in the United States, because the 14 states that require it. Oh, by the way, the other states can still bust you for consumer fraud stuff, you know, if you say it's this edition. So even though 14 states have specific statutes, if you're doing misleading things, it's unfair trade practices, it's fraud, you know, so you could get busted in the other 36 states also and probably in Europe and other places, but on more, you know, generic theories. Okay, but wait, I have a question. Okay, so I'm a photographer. So let's say I have a photograph and I make an edition of 100 mm -hmm. on a particular paper at a particular size. Now, what if like 10 years later, I want to do another edition on a different paper, on a different printer with a different technique, let's say, at a different size? Is that still constitute sort of like the same pr image? Probably. See, what you would want to do on your certificate of authenticity is just in a little comment section that you reserve the right to use this image in other manners, you know, not the same size. You know, just say, I won't recreate this exact same print, but I reserve the right to use the image, you know, in other manners. Because when you came out with your second edition, if it impacts the value of the first edition, you've got a problem. If it doesn't really have any impact on the first edition, they could sue you, but there are no damages. You know, saying, yeah, he came out with second edition. How are you damaged? I mean, you know, maybe foul, no harm, you know, kind of thing. So yeah, I always put in, you know, the comment that when I'm writing these, that you reserve the right to use it. Yeah, here. The artist retains the right to reproduce the image in other medium in any manner whatsoever, except no other limited edition print in any medium, in the same medium shall be created. You know, there's just kind of thing. Fabulous. All right, wait. When it comes to certificates of authenticity and these 14 points that are legally mandated to be in every certificate of authenticity in those 14 states, should the information be typed or handwritten? 
Oh, that's now that reminds me. You can provide it in any format, but the reason I said most websites are almost all art websites are violating the law is you're supposed to provide the information prior to sale. You know, most people at best stick it in the box when you're leaving the, you know, the gallery or when they mail it to you, you have the certificate. See, that doesn't provide the consumer with the knowledge that they need in order to decide whether to buy it or not. They don't know when they've bought it that it's actually an addition of 1000 instead of 150 when you stick it in the box afterwards. So the statutes generally provide that no offer for sale can be made without. So in other words, on an, and I've almost never seen this, on an art website, if you don't have the certificate right there, there should at least be a link to the certificate so that before I buy the thing, I can click on the certificate to see the extent of the run, basically. I'm just here. I'm just looking at the California statute and it says an art dealer shall not sell or consign a multiple into the state unless a certificate of authenticity is furnished to the purchaser at his or her request or in any event prior to a sale or consignment, which sets forth and then, you know, it gives the list. So I, I can't remember the last time I saw a website that actually had those things, you know, available. Yes. Saatchi, I don't think does those at all. No. But, yeah. uh, and, but you know, you know, again, they're and basically the, you can usually return an artwork. Sometimes some of the states say they're triple damages. In other words, you get three, you can get up to three times the amount, a couple make it criminal. I don't think I've ever heard of a state's attorney actually criminally going after somebody, but for the big frauds, it's, you know, they don't necessarily, you know, where they're, the fraudulent people get busted for the frauds, not so much for violating the certificates, but the certificates, we've been a couple of clients, you know, we've gone back to people and said, we want you know, my client's money back. We don't want to do it. And then we say, well, you, you, you can either return their money or you're going to pay, we're going to sue you for three times as much plus attorney's fees under the statute, immediately get your money back. <laughs> it's, it's an intent. Nice. Yeah. Okay, uh, advice from a legal standpoint for, let's say, practicing artists that are alive, you know, what they can, what they should know or do or something that you feel like we always neglect. Places that have copyright registrations, I think, you know, you should. You should always put a copyright notice on your work. And if you're still of the old school where you don't want to put it on the front, you know, which is be the C in the circle, your name in the year, put it on the back. Because it lets people know it's a protected work. So if somebody posts it online, you know, if they cut it off, which, by the way, in the United States, under the DMCA, that is illegal to cut off the copyright information or the artist's name. It is actionable, at least in the U.S. But, you know, people know that it's protected. People know who to go to for permission. So, you know, you, you want to do that. You do want to you do want to register if you're working in a studio environment make sure all your assistants sign off on a document saying they claim no rights to your work or copyrights or joint authorship. There've been a number of lawsuits. Generally, the, the main artist is one, but not always, you know, whose studio it is. There was a case with Chihuly recently that was, came out this year. Chihuly, because of a uh, hand disfigurement in an accident, never makes any of his glass works. He sits there and tells people what to do and one of 30-year manager, assistant, you know, just claimed to be joint author. Uh, Chihuly won that one, but there have been other cases where it went the other way. I had a case where I represented Renoir's heirs against Guino's heirs. Guino was Renoir's assistant when he had 
arthritis in his last years and he was doing sculptures. And at the time, Guino was some young, talented guy who had no style of his own. So he'd sit there with Renoir and Renoir would say, do this and do this. And the guy would literally in front of him, you know, sculpt it and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, for, for generations, it was these are Renoir sculptures and at best in a, you know, be a footnote with the assistance of Guino. Well, Guino sued successfully in France to be named a joint author. And then we got into litigation in the United States where I got it. I didn't get involved in that as to the rights between Guino and, you know, Renoir's heirs here. So if you're running a studio and you have assistance, you know, besides confidentiality stuff, it doesn't hurt that you don't go in you know, that I don't know that non-competes help, but I would certainly have make sure that they waiver and assign any and all IP rights to you. Have you had any issues with repatriation? Oh, I dealt with that over the years and good number of times. Stolen art, cultural art, you know, all those. Yeah, they come up. Those are always, at least for mine, have always been very close to the chest, quiet, private things. None of them have ever seen the light of day. Some are settlements, some are returns. Sometimes it's been stolen from museums. Sometimes it's Holocaust. So I don't do much on the Holocaust stuff. Fakes, forgeries, stolen art comes up fairly regularly in this line of work. I've generally been on the reputable end. So we've everything has been taken care of properly. You know, I, I haven't represented the guys who ripped it off the wall or who made the fakes. But yeah, but that, you know, there's statutes. And again, it depends where it's happening. You know, uh, in Switzerland, if you buy stolen stuff in good faith, it's yours. In the United States, if you buy stolen art, I don't care what good faith it is, a thief can't pass title, so you, you're buying nothing. You know, so there's, you know, the good faith purchaser laws vary by country to country. So, you know, if you want to buy stolen stuff, go to Switzerland. Don't come to the United States. You know, sometimes there's statute limitations, which if you don't sue early enough, you technically don't own it, but they can't sue you for it because the statute is run. Of course, until you try to sell it and then the statute runs again, uh, you know, on the next sale. But, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, quirks to it. But, you know, really that depends on country to country. Uh, Switzerland is notorious. That's why you have the giant Freeport in Geneva full of hundreds of thousands of stolen pieces of art, I imagine, you know, there. Oh, I've heard stories that if you if you buy a piece of art in Switzerland and never exhibit it or put it up in your home and then resell it, you never have to pay taxes on it. Well, that has to do with the Freeport. That's uh, that could be a TV also. I mean, it depends. I mean, again, you're getting into tax. Well, in the United States, for instance, we have sales and use taxes in all but five states. So if you buy the art and such in one of those five states, you don't have to pay sales tax. But when you take it home, you have to pay the use tax, which is the same as the sales tax. But in California, it only goes to new property, not used property. So what we do is we have our clients buy stuff, let's say, in New York. We have it shipped to Oregon. We work out a deal with a museum where they exhibit it for 90 days. It's now considered used. Then it's shipped to California. And we've saved, it's almost 9% sales use tax in California. And you're talking about, you know, a $10 million piece. You've just saved $900,000 by having it exhibited, which also enhances the value in a museum in one of these five states. So, you know, they're all, and it's totally legal and kosher. There's nothing wrong with it in any way, shape or form. 
morally questionable though no everybody knows about it they do it you make a donation to the museum you know it's a gift to them as a you know to help what are the five states so oregon delaware those are the only two that matter the other ones you know like montana you know whatever and then there's no museums or anything oregon has some good museums delaware is right next to new york so if you're really in the not I don't care. I'm never going to hold it in my house. I just want to buy this as an investment. You buy it in New York or California, wherever you're going to buy it. And you have it shipped. Because if you ship it out of state, you don't pay the sales tax. So you ship it into a warehouse. And there's some great fine art warehouses in Delaware. You ship it in Delaware. It sits in Delaware till you sell it. And then you ship it from Delaware to wherever. And then you... Now, that's not income tax. That's sales and use tax, which is anywhere from you know, six to 9%, I guess, in the United States, their state taxes. So what you're talking about in Geneva is probably a comparable thing with the VAT and the other kind of taxes that you have in Europe. It's sent to a free port, which is not a taxing. It sits there and then it's shipped out of the free port. So none of those are VAT, I'm, you know, VAT subject transactions. I'm no expert in VAT side, you know, but that's the general theory. Okay. Yeah. You're my first attorney guest. I've been look. I've been looking for an IP attorney for like a year as a guest because I'm fascinated by all of this stuff. Yeah. No, it's like, a, you know, it's an interesting field. You know, for me, it took me about 15 years before I could blow off all the divorces and car accidents and all the other kinds of, you know, cases till I could just do this. And, you know, it's been a, you know, been a great, you know, run, you know, I deal with, lot of wonderful, interesting musicians and writers and filmmakers and actors and visual artists and protecting their rights, knocking, you know, getting rid of infringers and making collectors get good deals at the auction houses, you know, and the technology keeps me on my toes where, I mean, I spend no less than a half hour every day just reading cases and journals and stuff on stuff. And there's always, every day, there's some new twist to it all of a sudden now all the photographers are suing everybody because the technology is such with the click of a button they can search the entire internet for a photograph uh, and it's now automated so they upload a thousand photographs and like in a minute and a half every place it's been you know you right clicked on it 10 years ago and put it on your website or on your brochure and stuff and what they're doing now is they automatically find it they automatically generate a cease and desist letter they then take a multiple of what they normally would license it for, let's say three to 10 times, that's automatically generated, send you this letter automatically in email or to the website where they found the thing demanding you stop using it and you pay this sum. And they say, but they don't even do any checking. Say, but if you have a license or something, let us know. I mean, you know, because they send these letters for fair uses. They send the letters to people who have licenses. You know, I mean, and then when you don't respond, they have attorneys who automatically generate a nasty legal letter, which now the money is more, but it's almost always less than it would cost you to hire a lawyer. So, you know, it would be $500, $1,500, $2,500, where it's just not worth your while to go to a lawyer to have them tell you, well, they can say you owe it, but they can also say, no, you know, so they, the numbers are always there. So it's automatically generated. 
And, you know, we get these all the time because everybody and their grandmother, you know, up until recently when this started happening, just right clicked on any picture they saw on the internet, you know, did a paste and then, I mean, did a cut and then pasted it into their websites, their brochures, you know, or whatever else. And got away with it for generations because there was no way for photographers in the past to do it. If you want to see an example, no, I'm not plugging any company, but Tinai, T-I-N, EYE.com. I think they have a commercial thing, but they have a free one at a time. So you take any picture, any image you want, you upload it and it's in, you know, you just, you know, browse and you click on it. I thought it didn't work the first time I did it because it was like five seconds later and they say, we have just searched 4 billion, you know, site. every place on the internet, it appears with the link to it and everything else. And I mean, it's mind boggling, you know, so if you're an artist and you're looking for infringements, or, you know, just post, you know, again, you can do it in bulk, getting a commercial license from tonight. There are many companies doing it now. They were the first ones I knew and they do have the free thing. I think Google Goggles also does that. I think it's, if you go into a Google search, I think there's a little thing that looks like binoculars that'll do a similar kind of thing as Tinai. You know, but again, it's, you know, part of the, the technological revolution those kind of things. So, I mean, every week there's something new which keeps me on my toes and, and busy. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much. Oh, man, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was, I was you know, if I can talk about myself for 45 minutes and things, hey, what's better? <laughs> yeah, it's great fun. I mean, and incredibly informative. I learned a lot from just talking with you. All right. Well, thank you. And I feel better about certain things. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad I made you feel better. All righty. Take care now. Bye-bye. I know every podcast asks for your help, and I'm no different. I'm going to ask for your help as well. The algorithm is based in star reviews and comments. So if you want to be supportive of this podcast without being a sponsor or any sort of money kind of thing, the kind of thing you can do is take a second and do a star rating or leave a comment. It can be critical. It can be supportive. It can be anything you want. But the more comments and the more star likes that we receive, the more that we will be able to get more listeners and then, of course, get better guests because we have more listeners and it's a trickle-down effect, just like our arts careers. One little thing can lead on to a better thing later on. So these little acts that you do will be greatly beneficial to not only the podcast, but to you, because the better guests we get, the better conversations we have, the more you will end up learning through the experiences of others. So thank you very much for your support. And I look forward to bringing you more and more information and knowledge to help you with your career. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs>